This is the Prevention Podcast with former intelligence officer and author Dan Verton. Sponsored by LiveSafe, the leading risk intelligence communications platform that surfaces early warning insights and prevents serious safety and security incidents to mitigate operational risks, reduce financial losses, and make places safer for people to work, learn, and live. What we're inevitably likely to see is still that there will be lawsuits that say uh, that there were particular risks that weren't fully assumed, that weren't disclosed to students, or that there were cases where the universities behaved uh, not just negligently, but grossly negligent and recklessly um, in some of the activities that they permitted. So I don't think it really changes the standard of care. Uh, I think what is uh, the thing that they need to keep their eye on is what it is that they're required to do in order to reopen and have they met those requirements. In a desperate effort to open their doors for another school year, some colleges and universities have been asking students to sign informed consent agreements that would shield the institution against legal claims if a student becomes infected with COVID-19. But now many institutions are teaming up with insurance companies and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to lobby Congress to pass a temporary liability shield as part of the next economic stimulus package which remained stalled just days before lawmakers are scheduled to leave Washington for the August recess. Although a liability shield would be a welcome development for colleges and businesses alike, legal experts are warning that even with such protections in place, the calculated risk to open a college or university in the middle of a pandemic could still lead to a storm surge of lawsuits. Joining me to discuss this approaching liability storm is Liz Brockman, a partner with the Toxic Tort Environmental and Insurance Practice Group at the law firm Selman Brightman, and Harry Nelson, the founder and managing partner of Nelson Hardiman, the largest boutique healthcare law firm in Los Angeles. Liz, Harry, welcome to the Prevention Podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask both of you right off the start, how would you describe the current liability exposure that colleges and universities who have chosen to reopen face when they return in the fall. Harry, let's start with you. I think, um, you know, colleges and universities, like every institution around us, are uh, legitimately worried about the, the, the risk of lawsuits. Um, when I, as a lawyer, by the way, I started my career as a college and university lawyer um, before really focusing on, on, on health care. Uh, uh, you know, you, I, you focus on as a lawyer on three kinds of liability, three kinds of duties of care. One is what, what kind of duties do you owe under the contracts? You know, when you're when you're when you're when your students pay tuition, for example, what do you owe them uh, contractually? Number two is w- what kind of duties do, do statutes and government impose uh, in the law? And number three is in the common law. Uh, you know, what what kind of claims can people make? Um, and uh, and that last one is the place where universities are worried. Uh, the claim of negligence, that is a claim that you had a duty to operate as a reasonable university to take to take steps to be prudent, and you breach that duty, is always available, and uh, universities uh, have are, are particularly worried about uh, claims that they have not taken reasonable steps uh, as they reopen and, and allow uh, close contacts that may uh, lead to exposure. Liz, what are your thoughts on the current liability landscape? So it's tricky territory because this is such an emerging and changing 
environment that we're in right now with this pandemic. And on the one hand, you have the request for Congress to pass liability shields uh, or create by statute such a shield so that the universities are afforded some form of protection. And I, the thinking on that is it's in society's interest for schools and businesses to try to reopen. Um, they believe they need some form of protection, though, because of the legal system we have in this country. Uh, I think the issue with some of that is that while we are not a strict liability country, in other words, you are going to need to establish some sort of negligence or that, in simpler terms, the university has breached its reasonable duty of care to a student or whoever it is that might be bringing the lawsuit, uh, a liability waiver would, to some degree, protect the university from general negligence. Now, that's not to say that a lawsuit can't be brought if somebody were grossly neg negligent in the way that the university was handling its management of the um, standards that either their local or state departments of health have set forth with regard to the handling of the requirements for reopening. You both mentioned something that I think we should talk about now, and that is the issue of duty of care and standard of care and how those will play out in potential lawsuits against colleges and universities. It's clear that, that many of these institutions are taking actions to meet their duty of care obligations, but doesn't the wide range of different approaches across the country to COVID-19 safety and prevention, as well as the lack of real specific guidance from the federal government, doesn't that complicate the notion of standard of care and what is reasonably expected of institutions when it comes to protective measures against COVID-19, or does this not matter at this point? Harry, let's start with you. No, I, I think you're asking a good question. Standard, so standard of care is a tough question because standard of care, there's no book or, or website you can go to. There's no authority that says this is the standard of care. Standard of care is left in uh, lawsuits for, uh, for judges and juries to decide about what a reasonable university in this context, what a reasonable university would have done in response to the crisis. So uh, when you see a variety of different approaches, it, it opens up a whole uh, playing field for people to make all kinds of arguments about what was reasonable, and it leaves uh, judges and juries in the decision of having to make choices about that. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a very messy space. The, the only space, just as a side comment, where we've seen, you know, we've seen there's two big principles that I think of when it comes to universities. The Supreme Court about 35 years ago, decided a case called Regents versus Hewing, where they said, we're not going to interfere in academic decisions. That's really the zone that the university has the right to protect itself in. In the last few years, with the, with the rise of campus violence, we've seen uh, some courts around the country, including the California Supreme Court, uh, say that there's a duty of care to, to protect or warn students about foreseeable violence. But we are in completely uncharted territory here with the duty of care and standard of care on public health issues like infection. So I think uh, universities are right to be worried and, and, and it's, a, it's gonna be a hornet's nest of questions about what, they sh what would be reasonable to do. Liz, what are you, your thoughts on duty of care and standard of care? Well, I think as I said at the beginning that it's difficult because those 
those standards are evolving and changing. So what we look to is what it is that your state and local health authorities are asking you to do in order for you to reopen as a college or university. If you are complying with those requirements, then from the university standpoint, they are meeting their duty of care. Now, are there things they could be doing to go above and beyond some of those requirements? For example, um, testing of all students, uh, having some sort of um, automatic check-in, uh, requiring all students get tested. Those are all things that if they are not part of the requirements for reopening, universities could decide that they want to undertake in order to further mitigate any risk. But that is not to say that because they do so, they've created some new standard of care. So those things need to be weighed against the cost of what, it, what it's going to take if they do decide to undertake those additional steps. So I don't think it really changes the standard of care. Uh, I think what is uh, the thing that they need to keep their eye on is what it is that they're required to do in order to reopen and have they met those requirements. It's going to vary from state to state and the universities are governed by what the states, their own states hand down. For example, what it might take to reopen a university in North Dakota is probably going to be different from what it is going to take to open a university in California, which is where I practice, because of the state of the virus in each of those different places. So while what might be reasonable for one university to do in North Dakota to reopen might not be reasonable for a university in California to reopen. So in that sense, it could be a different standard of care when you look at the differing states and what the universities each are required to do in those different states because the state of the virus is different and the requirements in those states are different. So other than the informed consent agreements and potential legislation from Congress that would include a liability shield for colleges and universities, are there other liability protections that maybe are already in place that these institutions can rely upon? So I actually think that those documents are going to be extremely helpful. The general rule in um, in most states is that uh, you can assume a risk, meaning if, if you want to uh, engage in a particular activity and, uh, and you sign something and say, I'm assuming the risk. So if you're going to go skydiving or you're going to, you know, you're going to rent a boat, uh, any kind of activity you're going to engage in and they ask you to sign something, you, the general rule is you can, as a person, you can say, I'm going to assume the risk th- uh, that this activity is dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, we, we have a rule that you can't assume the risk of gross negligence, meaning there's, that doesn't give anybody permission to behave recklessly. So I do think that universities are going to get some extent of protection, um, and but what we're, what we're inevitably likely to see is still that there will be lawsuits that say uh, that there were particular risks that weren't fully assumed, that weren't disclosed to students, or that there were cases where the universities behaved uh, not just negligently, but grossly negligent in, and recklessly um, in some of the activities that they permitted. So I think there's still risk, it, it, even though the, the documents go a long way towards narrowing it. And, and there are going to be arguments that, uh, that, that universities uh, facilitated and encouraged, um, you know, large gatherings. Uh, that's certainly a, 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 a one of the issues that I see uh, coming up and questions already uh, arising around when, uh, when universities 
become these big public spaces where there are going to be lots of people coming together in close contact and inevitably, um, you know, events that are, are, are super spreader events. Just because somebody contracts COVID at a university doesn't automatically mean that the university is liable if they were to bring a lawsuit. Even in the absence of a waiver or a statute shielding the school, they still would need the student or whoever it is that is suing the university to come forward and say that you have breached your standard of care and you've acted unreasonably in the manner in which uh, you have conducted yourself in connection with the handling of the COVID-19 crisis. And they would still need to establish causation and damages. So our own legal system sets up certain um, standards that need to be met. And in that way, there is that level of protection. However, that's not to say that it's preventing anybody from bringing a lawsuit. I mean, I think, you know, the, the in general, when you look at the law surrounding uh, colleges and universities, and it, it is specific from state to state, what, what we've seen over the last uh, uh, several decades, I would say going back more than 50 years, is more and more limitations that the law has put into place really narrowing the understanding of what the responsibility of universities is to students. Um, as you noted at the beginning of the show, it's very different from their duty of care in the workplace. But the, the law has, the case law from different you know, lawsuits that have been brought have really gotten away from the idea that universities have a responsibility to be, you know, in loco parentis and to be protective of students and have been much more, you know, have, have basically said, really, this, the relationship between a student and a university is much more of just the contract of whatever they uh, signed between them and, and, and whatever the university uh, uh, committed to do and uh, whatever it disclaimed, it's not responsible for. So I do think that, um, you know, that these that that there is some protection in that. Uh, but I, I totally I completely understand the um, university uh, uh, leadership wanting to see a federal law here because the big challenge of the American legal system is that lawsuits are uh, easy to file, and there are um, there are plenty of lawyers who uh, who are interested to push uh, this as an area of, uh, of of as a new area, um, and uh, there's not there's nothing to stop them. And and even if those lawsuits are not ultimately uh, wildly successful in producing multi million dollar settlements, they're still going to be a massive cost. Uh, and a drain on resources and something that uh, universities are are scared of. Let's talk a little bit about what we know colleges and universities are currently doing in terms of preparing for the new uh, school year. Other than physical alterations to campuses, um, for example, we know that colleges are re-engineering some of their physical spaces and uh, foot traffic flow and things of that nature. Um, but other than those types of physical alterations, do technologies have a role in mitigating COVID-19 liability? For example, um, many colleges and universities are deploying the mobile health surveys uh, on mobile phones, automated check-ins for symptom status, the, the ability to have a record that enables you to begin contact tracing if an infection is detected. I mean, do these types of systems speak to the duty of care obligations and meeting those uh, obligations? Oh, absolutely. I think these are all um, valuable steps. The way that I think about this is if you are, if there, if a lawsuit is filed and a university has to defend the position that it, it behaves 
as a reasonable university, would it behave? The way I think about that is it's sort of like um, like every step that you've taken, uh, every best practice that you followed, whether it's mobile surveys or automated check-ins with symptoms uh, or contact tracing, is is like a brick in a wall. And uh, and the more that you can show that you you were really paying attention as a uh, as an institution to what other uh, what other schools were doing, that you were paying attention to best practices. You were paying attention to what the Center for Disease Control and other kind of leading guideposts were doing, as well as, uh, you know, industry associations. The more that you can show that you thought about things and you then made decisions and took reasonable steps, the better off you're going to be in in establishing what the standard of care is and that you met that standard. So I I I think uh, uh, any any university that is. you know, that is thinking about these issues needs to be paying close attention to what the recommendations are out there, what everybody else is doing, what their insurers are saying they need to do, what the government is saying, and really be uh, taking steps. There's, there may not be, we don't know exactly what the, there's no right answer here, but the more you're thinking and acting uh, about uh, prevention and monitoring, uh, the better off you're going to be. Well, I think you need to be careful when you use the word duty. So, Obviously, all of those technologies are helpful in terms of how the school is handling its management of the COVID-19 crisis, but that does not equate to a heightened duty that's created just because they have ability to take on those technologies. And again, when you talk about duty, what they need to look to is what it is that the state and local authorities are requiring them to do in order to reopen. If they have undertaken those particular requirements, then the argument is that they have met their duty. If they go beyond that and employ technologies that are helpful, but perhaps required, then that will obviously them in the sense that if there were a lawsuit to be filed, they could say, hey, look, I've done what the state has asked me to do and all of this in addition to that. So. Just because a student has gotten sick or a teacher has gotten sick and has decided to sue us doesn't mean that I've breached any standard of care, and it aids them in their defense of um, a lawsuit and would assist them in in terms of how they are handling their defense of a lawsuit or just overall the overall handling of the particular um, situation that they're facing at their school. So I think when you look at technologies, you also need to take into consideration the fact that there are some technologies that perhaps could be employed in some places. In other places, it may not be possible. For example, if you have the thought, well, I want to test everybody that comes in for COVID and test them on a routine basis, some states say we're not going to allow that because right now we're saving our tests for people who are symptomatic, people who have been in contact with people who are symptomatic and healthcare workers. So tests may not be available nationwide to every school who wants to use them, even if they could afford to do so. So it it is something that I think needs to be thought out. But again, if we look at what the bright line rule is, the bright line rule, if there is one in this crisis, is that the universities should be looking to the requirements that the states and local authorities are imposing on them in order to reopen. 
My guests have been Liz Brockman, a partner with the Toxic Tort Environmental and Insurance Practice Group at the law firm Selman Brightman, and Harry Nelson, founder and managing partner of Nelson Hardiman in Los Angeles. Liz, Harry, thank you very much for your time on the Prevention Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. The Prevention Podcast airs every other Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. Available wherever you get your podcasts. You can sign up for our newsletter at livesafemobile.com and follow us on Twitter at LiveSafe. Thank you.